0: Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 120. Today is Sunday, November the 12th, 2017. And today's guest is Dr. Pamela Reuter-Finstra, who is an American organist, uh, improviser, scholar, liturgical musician, and pedagogue. In this conversation, we talked about her second volume of her improvisation treatise called Bach and the Art of Improvisation. Simultaneously revolutionary and realistic, Pamela Rotterfinstra resuscitates historic improvisation from relevant treatises and documentation of Bach's improvisation pedagogy and counterpoint with tried and true applications. She incrementally guides the reader from improvising cadences, chorales, partitas and dances in Volume 1 to improvising preludes, fantasies and ultimately fugues in Volume 2 of Bach and the Art of Improvisation. The chapters on continue playing alone beckon reform of current practice. So I invite you to listen to this entire conversation because her insights will help you to improve your improvisation in historical styles especially if you love Johann Sebastian Bach's music. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much Pamela for joining uh, this conversation tonight. I know this morning uh, is for you in Ann Arbor and it's uh, evening in Vilnius uh, I've been looking forward to, to this conversation for years now, right? Because your book, The Bach of uh, Improvisation, Volume 2, is, uh, is very, very crucial work and uh, I think will be appreciated all over the world. Thank you so much. You're very generous with your ideas and your time and welcome to the show, Pamela.
1: Thank you so much, Vidas, and and indeed I I send gratitude right back to you because you and Aushra were among um, some of the most astute people to test the the work of the um, Bach and the Art of Improvisation both volumes one and two and so it's a real delight to offer this tribute to you and the how you tested the material and helped me to design it um, to be the most effective pedagogically as well as musicologically.
0: Yes you know you know it's so important that people um, get uh interested into this ancient art of uh, improvising in, in historical styles, you know, because uh, sometimes this this art might be lost over the centuries, like, uh, like Johann Adam Reinken said to, to Bach when, when Bach visited him, and uh, the old master said, oh, I thought maybe this art was lost, but I know it live, lives in you now. So it's important for us to carry on this tradition, right? And oh, it okay. is. Right. Yeah. Uh, a, a treatise per, treatise per se, uh, he left maybe instructions and uh, examples and in, in models from his works. So that's where you come in, Pamela, right? You deconstruct and decipher uh, these models and present them into, into modern ways so that our modern consciousness can understand them and uh, practice and... Uh, embellish and uh, make a living tradition once again.
1: Yes, that's right. And there are so many beautiful descriptions of Bach's improvisations. Uh, His students describe it. There are treatise authors describing what he did. And as you said, he didn't leave a treatise himself, although we have his precepts, as vorschriften, um, and that gives some guideline as to how he started with his students. But in essence, I argue in Bach, in The Art of Improvisation, that we have a treatise in practice from Bach. Um, and that is what I try to do, is to decipher, go to the direct source, the most valuable source, and that is his music. And what has he taught us in his music? And how can we learn to improvise? Because uh, chances, I mean, it's, it's fairly likely there's been a fair amount of research done about this, that much repertoire much of what we consider today repertoire that was composed music in the 17th, 18th centuries and even before that was actually teaching material. It was uh, the music that was written down was written down by composers who were trying to teach their pupils how to improvise in this style and how to compose in that style. And so it, we really do have a, a treatise from Bach, but it's up to us to be able to decipher it. And that's, that's been my goal to, as you say, deconstruct his music, to pull, pull it apart into the various tools that are there, and then to start reconstructing it, to put it back together, but perhaps in different ways than what Bach did, but using the same tools, using the same pedagogy that he used when he himself learned, he was a lifelong learner, and when he taught his pupils.
0: So if we go back to the beginnings, Pamela, do you remember the time when you first fell in love with improvisation, Bach, and, and this tradition, and how it all started? I know uh, Osha and I met you back in the summer of 2000, right? In, in Sweden, yes. in And Yes. And you, actually, you were the first person first teacher first professor uh, with whom uh, we met a contact and uh, this contact of course uh, became even stronger over the years right it was like a lucky coincidence for us and uh, I know by that time you were already practicing and teaching improvisation but do you remember the day or maybe a moment in time when it all began for you
1: Yes, well, as when I was a child, I spent hours and hours on the piano, and I would practice my repertoire first because that was required, but then I would stay at the piano and I would play recordings, and I would just play one track and then go to the piano and see if I could duplicate what I had just heard. And um, so much of my early improvisation was just simply daily aural training, aural perception. Could I perceive what was happening in the music and recreate it on the piano? And I was often cre- uh, recreating choral music or hymns, um, four-part harmony that was in this Baroque tradition. And... Um, then I once I would figure out, uh, I would listen for the soprano and the bass. And then I would eventually figure out what sounded good between that soprano and bass. And then be able to play through an entire chorale or hymn or choral piece that I had then aurally transcribed for the piano. And once I could remember it, then I would start making variations on it. And this was just my little game at home that I played because it made me happy to do this and it felt like it was exercising my brain and I could play musically and it felt freeing in a way that repertoire playing didn't always feel. And so it was all sensorial at that time. I had no pedagogy given to me, no guidelines. And in a way, maybe that was beautiful because... It was just um, exploration for the, for the delight of it. And I think that's something that I would love to give to every musician because sometimes I think as professional musicians, it's easy to become so fixated on details and perfecting um, our technique or every, having every note and rhythm absolutely accurate. But really, um, we probably all came to it from the delight of listening to music or the the wonderful feeling of playing it. And I would like to now offer uh, musicians the chance to recover that multi-sensorial experience of, of exploring with our ears and our fingers and our voices and our breath, what it feels like to make music and to hear music and then to recreate music. So, um, Yeah, so that was my childhood. But I have to say, when I got to college, I noticed that no one was improvising. So I stopped. I stopped for two whole years because I would listen outside practice rooms and and couldn't hear anyone playing anything but repertoire. And I just thought to myself, oh, so I guess this was a game for children and professional musicians don't do this. But then um, I got to hear a year later I heard the famous Dutch organist Klaus Bult improvise an entire psalm festival based on Genevan Psalms and it was brilliant and it was some of the most alive organ playing I had ever heard and then it was that moment that I decided no it, it's, it's not that um, professional musicians don't need to improvise it's just the opposite every professional musician deserves to learn to improvise. And then that got me thinking, okay, I'm going to start practicing it again. But by that time, I had more um, music theory classes and studies and repertoire and organ literature and his music history. And so I started thinking, but how does one teach someone to improvise? I mean, it's it's obviously takes just as much practice as repertoire playing. but I've, I've had that I had that question then ever since I was a, a young university student and that question stayed in my mind as I started teaching.
0: Yes So of course um, nowadays uh, a lot of people, just play the notes, right? They they just play what's written and sometimes even don't connect the ear You did the opposite Pamela from your early age uh, You try to recreate what was written or even what was sounding right uh, to you yes. uh, Somebody played the melody for you and you try to recreate it on the instrument. Yes so, uh, Perception uh, from your ears. It's so important, right? And a lot of times uh, people don 't even realize this possibility this opportunity, even today right uh, but uh, i'm so grateful that somebody has uh, taken the initiative and uh, the, the trouble of, of putting everything together in in those important. And difficult volumes, right? And uh, I hope people will get so much out of this because it's so comprehensive. It's it's a very thick book, and uh, you can even, um, (laughs) as as they say, you can kill a duck with this. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's wonderful. Uh, uh, Yes. uh, it's, it is. I do hope that, that uh, people will enjoy, well, not only killing ducks, but, <laughs> but also um, recreating this idea of using the ears and, and getting, a because sometimes with reading repertoire, it's very easy for the eyes to take over, right? And the, then the ears go to the background. But if, that, if the eyes are not reading the, the music, then new things happen to the ears, and this is a this is a wonderful opportunity, I think, for for musicians to develop their ears, as well as audience members. They listen to improvisation differently than they listen to repertoire because they don't know what to expect. So there's this heightened anticipation. And improvisation, I think, is the best way to test instruments. The the soul of an instrument what sounds best what combinations of sounds work well on an organ or what uh character or affect does each individual sound have and that's it's possible to discover this more deeply through improvisation than through repertoire because the repertoire is fixed but the improvisation isn't and so it's possible to explore ah, this, this sound, this vox has a, a certain pathos to it, and w- what would it sound like in the upper register or in the lower register and with more or with less ornamentation and with a slow-moving accompaniment versus repeated notes in the, in the left hand, for instance, and all of these questions, just what sounds best and um, why and what affect does it evoke? Can can come only really through the improvisation.
0: This is uh, from the different tradition, but I think uh, Charles Tournemire uh, once wrote that uh, a person, an organist who cannot improvise is just half, half, uh, not complete, not uh, total organist but uh, just half of the organist right in order to be a complete person you have to improvise you have to make music you have to create yes Mm -hmm. and uh, i remember the time when people like you or eduardo belotti or bill porter or uh, uh, more recently uh, zice devries when they improvise they they, it's it's just another uh, dimension right it's like Um, this composer whom they're trying to recreate uh, has risen from the dead basically and speaks through them uh, in another way right it's like rediscovered uh, old Bach's piece or Buxtehudes or Wilms piece right oh I didn't know this toccata exists or Coral fantasia right it's like a written down piece but we never never experienced it before and uh, through this historical improvisation this is still possible to recreate this ancient tradition
1: yes and it's uh, these composers are so profound in what they've done and so we often wish we we could see and and experience some of their works that we know were composed but are lost but this is another way to bring to life their work and to stand on the, the wonderful tradition that they created and to have it continue to influence our own practice of creativity.
0: Mm-hmm. So Pamela, uh, what uh, stops people from improvising, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, you- time, time factors. I think many um, university and conservatory students have many, many demands in terms of their coursework and their performance work, and uh, preparing degree recitals, and uh, qualifying exams, and writing dissertations. And so I think many people feel as if they have barely enough time to practice, let alone to add improvisation. And improvisation does take the same amount of practice that repertoire does in order to achieve the same level. But the beauty of practicing improvisation is that it also saves time because when one improvises, one is able to learn repertoire more quickly because uh, a musician will start thinking uh, and hearing and discovering more of how the piece is crafted, how it was composed and understand it more quickly. If, if, if one approaches it as an improviser, then if one is just t- using the eyes to read the music. And um, so it's an investment, It's but it's like money in the bank. Once you put that money in the bank, then it's there to retrieve and to enhance the repertoire playing, to um, increase the level of, of expressivity and musicianship in one's playing, to expand what one hears in other performances and I've had um, string players take improvisation lessons and then return to orchestra rehearsals and say I've really only f- ever focused on my own part and suddenly I'm hearing what the violas are playing and I'm hearing what the oboes are playing and the double basses and I, it makes my the context for my part so much more Alive, because I am realizing when I need to stand out more and when I need to fall back and just do my best to to work into the intonation of the harmony, and so it, it really does enhance every aspect of of musicianship. From my experience, Pamela, I can tell that
0: uh, sometimes we get discouraged from improvisation. Uh, we we, for example. F- f- fall in love with this, right? And uh, we hear other people improvise and, and say to ourselves, oh, I should try it, yes, it's good for us, right? And uh, one day uh, a brave person tries, uh, tries out a few exercises, right? And, but as you say, uh, our uh, uh, ability to read music is so much more progressed uh, in and in developed at this stage than to create something in our mind and recreate it with fingers. Well, then it's so difficult and complex. And what comes out of our, our mind uh, spontaneously, it's not the same as uh, what our taste tells us, right? We can feel, oh, I want to create uh, choral fantasia right away or a fugue, right? I know how it's constructed. But uh, uh, our mind doesn't work that fast. And uh, it it's practice. And we might get discouraged by this uh, Uh, stumbling right process
1: yes that that, that's a very important point that um, discouragement sets in because the repertoire level is much higher than the improvisation level initially and that's a difficult place to be in because once one is a professional musician or an advanced musician then one wants to sound like that all of the time but i have to say i I personally have started challenging myself to learn something new every year so that I remember what it feels like to be a beginner because it teaches me every time what questions are important, even at the very advanced level of of music making. I mean, how does this appeal to an audience is a very important question. But uh, as a professional musician, sometimes I'm much more thinking, you oh, know what is the performance practice style or is the what's the temperament of the instrument and and these very technical sophisticated thoughts. Um, but being a beginner at something teaches so much uh, about well being able to persevere, having tenacity, being able to ask um, all levels of questions about something. And it's a very healthy choice for the brain, for the whole body. I mean, I think it keeps the brain active. This is even studied by neurologists about constantly learning new things, learning new languages. And improvisation is another musical language. It's connecting with the musical language we know. And the more we practice it, then the more fluent we will become in it. So, But it doesn't just drop from the sky. It does take that practice. But I've also found in teaching a lot of people that for, for some students, if, if everything comes very easy to them, then it might be more difficult for them to persevere through something that is more difficult. And sometimes it's the student who has to struggle a bit more to achieve the technique or the to learn the material in a course who, who builds this skill of persevering of, through some struggles and through some challenges, who in the end is better able to explain how, how to do this, how, how to make music or to teach music, precisely because they've had to think about multiple ways of accomplishing a goal because maybe the first way they've tried didn't work very well. So this is, this is really available to every level for anyone who's ready and willing to practice and persevere with the practice. And I think it's helpful also to, to improvise for somebody and with somebody so that there's a social element about it. There's some exchange of ideas so that one doesn't feel stuck. I have to say many improvisation workshops are wonderful, But the the one aspect that I have found frequently with my own students, if they go to an improvisation workshop and they come back, they can show perhaps what they learned that day, but they're not sure what to do next. And um, so this is what was so important, both in discovering how Bach thought, how he improvised, how he composed, but then also to be able to communicate what are the steps very gradual steps that can make any musician feel successful and be successful in improvising. Because one can't, a musician can't just jump into improvising fugues without having practiced all sorts of other things. And that's what I've developed with both Volume 1 and Volume 2 now in Bach and the Art of Improvisation, that each chapter leads in steps, incremental steps, to the next chapter. And once one has practiced the applications in one chapter, one's ready to practice the applications in the next chapter. And that continues to build up exactly according to the steps that were described in Bach's teaching. Mm
0: -hmm. Another thing that uh, I have to mention, Pamela, is also that sometimes um, in our modern system of teaching uh, polyphonic music, sometimes we get stuck on uh, on the species counterpoint too much and uh, if yes it was written by the one of the contemporaries of bach perhaps but it's not uh, it's not how he uh, thought right and uh, if if for example if if i have this idea oh i if i could impro- improvise spontaneously species first species second and up to the f- fifth species I could uh, uh, recreate the style of bisinium uh, of Bach's chorale uh, writing. Uh, no, it's not it not uh, not uh, uh, at all because Bach did something different, right? And you discovered something uh, what was different. So, Pamela, what are your ideas about that?
1: Yes, yeah, so Bach uh, really worked from the chorale. He was a, a church musician most of all, um, and he. Worked from the chorale with the melody of the chorale, so the soprano, and then the bass, particularly the, the bass with figures, the thorough bass, the figures indicating what kind of chord was intended in the middle voices, what, what the rest of the harmony would be. And um, it's from this premise of thorough bass. So he first gave his students chorales with sopranos and basses, with the thorough bass. The soprano was often a choral melody or perhaps a chant, and then the um, he after the students were able to realize this in in four part harmony. This was the first step. Then he would give them a bass line alone, and um, they would improvise on that. And in book in volume two, so in, in volume one, I carried the the reader uh, through. Uh, these thoroughbass and chorale practices into chorale partitas, making variations on this, and then uh, chorale preludes and dance suites. And this is all based on having both the the melody and the bass line. And this was described that Bach taught this way for many, many months (laughs) before he went on to anything else. And uh, then in volume two, I pick up this thoroughbass and continue from there. Um, whereas, uh, for instance, in improvising uh, interludes, that's the first chapter in Vine 2. Uh, interludes are still based with the chorale. So we have the chorale melody and the bass, and now we're creating free interludes in between. So these interludes really consist of single lines that sound like a flourish because it's quick note values, 16th notes, 32nd notes. And there are specific ways of making these interludes, which can also be used for creating cadenzas in concerti for even the classical composers. Um, Specific ways of making these interludes that are based on the early figures that we learned in book one, figures that are used to make choral partitas and choral preludes. And it's just using these figures in sequence as well as using some harmonic arpeggios that we know now from the thorough bass and practicing arpeggios with some non-harmonic tones added. And then voila, we have interludes that segue beautifully from one chord to another because we're paying attention to what the harmony is from the end of one phrase to the beginning of the next phrase. So those
0: interludes aren't uh, the, the reason why got, uh, Bach, the young Bach in Arnstadt got in trouble.
1: Yes, he was scolded by his church council for having all these strange tones inserted and and we um, we aren 't sure about this, but it it the timing coincides with um the trip he took on foot to Lubeck to hear Boxtahuta play, and perhaps he was hearing some of the the fantasticus in Boxtahuda's Preludia, perhaps Boxtahuda improvised some uh, Interludes or Zwischenspiele in his own chorale, playing for the, the church services. Um, but however, it was instilled. He it got him in trouble. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone with Bach's stature being in trouble. But he was certainly scolded and reprimanded by the church council in Arnstadt. <laughs> yes, it's so,
0: it's so funny to read those old accounts, right? Uh, because these people, they don't. Have have any idea of uh, of course uh, what the significance of this person is or will be right
1: yes and he
0: became like like a like a regular musician right a regular yes. i you know like like this fagotist or or violinist in in taverns right so uh, they say oh you play too fast oh you play too slow right yes. too too, firmness, yes. too m- Dissonances. Yes. He is an artist, young but brilliant artist, right? Yes. They they sort of uh, don't let them do uh, his art.
1: Yes. Yes, and this might be of some comfort to today's church musicians and um, professors and, and students of music as they no doubt encounter some criticisms here and there that they're not alone. Bach suffered the same thing and yes just continue practicing the most wonderful musicianship that you can and um know for yourself that what you're doing is wonderful and that um there will be people who appreciate it and there will be critics i mean i think any any time that there's an interesting or new idea or a new way of doing something there's going to be some resistance to change and um uh, But it's sometimes that resistance that creates an uh, opportunity for a dialogue or an opportunity for a new way of thinking. And it may not happen overnight, just like learning improvisation doesn't happen overnight. But step by step, we we can improve things in our world and in the musical world as well as I think socially throughout the entire world. I think the arts play a, a very important role in um, showing voices of compassion and beauty.
0: Some uh, resistance and even frustration and desperation I think is is very necessary in this uh, case because in every story uh, we have throughout the ages, right, when the hero uh, uh, has adventures, right, there is a point in his story uh, where he or she um, he has, he has this uh, always lost moment, right? Uh, when, when the eyes open up and, and he or she, the hero she, uh, sees that something is wrong, right? And uh, I cannot go on uh, with this way. I have to change, right? And uh, eventually, uh, it, this realization propels the hero forward uh, through the third act, right? It was yeah. it's at the end of the second act or the story right episode when this all is lost moment is so whenever we try to uh, learn to improvise we also get stuck someplace but we have to it's important and it's necessary to get stuck and then we change and get unstuck
1: exactly and that's true with positions as well maybe Maybe being stuck means it's time to look for a different position. Or sometimes it means to try to take a different direction within the current position. And this is exactly then um, in the volume two in chapter nine, which is preludes. This is exactly what I show. I, I take Bach's well-tempered clavier preludes from book one and to show what techniques he used in these various preludes. And then I come back to the chorale and the thoroughbass and say, we can we can apply these same techniques with this chorale melody and this thoroughbass by filling in the harmony, but filling it in according to how Bach created these preludes. Mm-hmm. And in his preludes, especially in the well-tempered clavier, he very often takes one idea and develops it throughout two pages of music. If you just think of prelude number one, the perhaps um the listeners are familiar with with this prelude it's a five note chord there are five notes and then he repeats so it's one two three four five three four five the three third fourth and fifth notes are repeated and then the entire chord is repeated this way and then every single chord in that um Prelude has the same five notes, and then are repeated in that same pattern. So we can take a uh, chorale and do the exact same thing. In his in his Prelude number two, C minor, then the the soprano and the bass of a chorale and a bass line are outlined in the the outside voices, but in the inside voices, it's as if he has an alto and a tenor voice and then the neighboring tones so it's possible just to deconstruct these works of Bach, these wonderful lasting works and then create these lasting works ourselves but even have them there for the moment for a prelude or a postlude or an improvisation in a concert or sometimes when i play at a funeral there's something just there at the very moment that that speaks to how the people there are feeling about the person they, they are mourning and celebrating, whose life they're celebrating. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have many examples of preludes and applications with this, um, just to show this, this cycle of how one can take Bach's works and then learn so much from that to be able to improvise from that.
0: And these uh, examples from Buchlein also are very here important, right? Because uh, in in each prelude he has just
1: one idea and he develops it uh, throughout the piece. Yes, yes, exactly. And that, that this is something I hear when I adjudicate improvisation competitions. It's very tempting um, when for improvisers when they're um, competing to try to, they have so many wonderful ideas. Almost every improviser I've met has so many wonderful ideas. But it's rare to hear someone who really develops those ideas well. And those that's what it takes really to become a master improviser, is to be able to develop just a few ideas, rather than to make this collage of all the ideas Wonderful ideas that are there. I think it's a great idea to keep a notebook to have staff paper and jot down these ideas so that they're there. They won't get lost that way. But each one of them, or maybe each pair of them, can become a piece in and of itself. And and that way, the work is really on how how one develops the idea. And this is what we hear in all great art. I mean. Um, Beethoven's fifth, of course, uh, how small of a theme do we have that we hear over and over and over. One, two, three, four, four notes that he developed uh, to where it becomes this very profound and yet popular piece still today.
0: Yes. And you you mentioned about the ideas and how it's important to uh, write down them. It's like uh, for jazz musicians, right? They have this... Uh, sort of imaginary bag of tricks where they put their uh, sort of ideas for improvisation. Uh, Sometimes they heard this idea from another performer or improviser, right? Exactly. And it's, it's then later theirs to use too.
1: Yes, yes, yes. It's great to compare this to jazz because this is an, a a living tradition um, throughout many cultures, and and uh, but yet jazz musicians use fake books, and they do actually, they find sometimes their favorite passage from somebody else, and then they try to write it down so that they can figure out, deconstruct it, what what was going on in that, what, what kinds of chords did that person build? That's so exciting, and yes, this is what we're doing with Bach, and my goal is, so we've done the interludes and the preludes, and then we move through fantasias, and on through um, continual playing, which I'd like to talk about, and, and fugue. But my goal is every step of the way that the reader in this book can say, oh, you know, we didn't talk in here about this particular Bach prelude or that particular fantasia could be from another composer, even from a different era. But now I have the tools. I, myself, can deconstruct a work, figure out what... What are the components of that work? And then reconstruct a similar improvisation using different melodic material, using a different base, and, and then develop those ideas they, and therefore own this pedagogy. I've, I've come to believe after teaching for decades that the best pedagogy is a pedagogy that a person can own, that they don't need... I mean, sure, we all need teachers initially to help us know how to do it, something and to give feedback for how we can improve it, what's working well and what isn't and why. But eventually, we can become our own teachers and own that pedagogy. We still want to play for others and get that feedback, but we, don't, we no longer feel stuck after leaving just a, one workshop and improvisation. We have a method we can own and apply.
0: It's like for a hungry person, if you give them a fish, right, you maybe feed them once, but if you give them a tool uh, and teach them how to catch a fish, maybe that's for a lifetime, right?
1: Oh, that's a beautiful analogy, and that is, that's exactly the most, the, the best way to, to get at the issues, the social issues, and poverty issues and health issues that exist in in the globally and it is it's owning it it's um, having it happen indigenously and without reliance on some sort of outside source
0: Exactly. so Bach was very self-sufficient right he, he knew how to uh, learn from other masters right he
1: did it. oh he was so curious
0: and he collected all those collections from from early uh, um, manuscripts, right? He wrote down and copied the collections, right? Th- through through the copying process, he learned and they basically assimilated their style too, and expanded in even further, right? Into something that we adore today.
1: Yes, you, yes. He copied uh, music of Gerard Böhm and Johann Bachel, the other Bach. Uh, family uh, uh, um, music that they owned and treatises that they owned. He copied parts of musical Musikkalesche Handleitung, uh, which um, included this thoroughbass studies. And then even he took Neat's thoroughbass ideas for how to, to improvise a prelude based on a thoroughbass and improvise dances based on a thoroughbass. And he copied that for Anna Magdalena. And this is part of his Vorschrift, and then, and and we know also he explored um, Italian concerti because he made transcriptions of these. He was copying these, and he copied the, the French uh, Livre d'orgue from um, Nicolas de Grigny, and he again was. Um, touching up a bit the harmony and ornamentation as he was learning the style. So, yes, this curious mind lasted for his entire lifetime. And I think that's a a testament to what a wonderful musician he was, but also that he never had the idea that he knew everything. He always thought there's more to learn. And that's, I think, why he became such a profound composer and musician and pedagogue. So tell us,
0: Pamela, uh, what are we doing uh, differently today with continual playing that Bach did uh, in his own way?
1: Yes, continual playing. I think it's time for a revolution in continual playing. So thank you for that question. Uh, Today, what we see and hear frequently, not with everyone, but frequently is continual players and editors of scores, right, they realize the continual playing as vertical chords and yes, indeed, when we have a bass line with figures, the bass line is indicating what kind of harmony fits above those figures, but it was never prescribed that above that, that bass line, it had to be four part chords, the way we learned with four part chorales. And um, in fact, playing four part chords only as a vertical exercise above the continuo very often interferes with the the beautiful linear um, melodies that are going on in the various voices. And in fact, Bach didn't separate harmony as being a vertical element, he created these thorough basses and that that harmonic aspect was telling him how to fit within the harmony, but in a melodic way. So his continual playing was described as if he were playing a, the harpsichord with a trio. So let's say he had a flute and a violin and a cello, a Baroque cello or gamba. And then he, he and the gamba player were reading from the line, but he had figures Instead of playing four note chords with that, it was described that he turned this trio into a quartet. And the way he did this is by composing, or improvising rather, um, a, a voice in his right hand that sounded completely as if it had been composed. It sounded like an obligato fourth voice. And so C.P.E. Bach described Um, how people were astonished to hear how Bach in his improvised continual playing would turn a trio into a quartet or a duet into a trio. And so he's speaking to this linear nature of the right-hand part of the continual playing. So what I've done in um, these chapters in in Volume 2 of Bach and the Art of Improvisation is I've found, um, again, a treatise from Bach, so called, um, from his own continual playing. And this is the flute sonata with harpsichord, flute and harpsichord sonata, BWV 1030. And then the violin and harpsichord sonatas, um, BWV, it's uh, 1014 through 1019. All of these works, Bach composed Not only the the bass part, but he composed a right-hand part. And what's happening in his right-hand parts is that these are equal voices to what's happening in the flute or the violin. And as these equal voices, he um, is creating dialogue, imitation from, if the flute plays a line, the chances are the harpsichord will play something similar especially if it's rhythmically melodically interesting he's creating duet if there's stepwise motion in the cello part or the violin or flute part he will create duets in thirds and sixths, parallel thirds and sixths around these he's written this out or he will create what I call a debate and that is a contrasting theme so if one of the instruments has a very virtuosic part, then he will create something slower moving as a contrast. If one of the it, conversely, if the violin, for instance, has a slow moving part, he might create more activity in the harpsichord. So that very contrast um, is complementary to what is happening in the other instruments. So I summarize this. It's easy to remember. Pedagogically, into three Ds. It's not 3D visual. It's 3D aural and tactile. Um, and those Ds are dialogue, duet, and debate. These are the three techniques Bach uses in these pieces. And these are his his treatise or his thesis that he gives to us through his repertoire of how to improvise continuo playing. Now this. Particularly applies to slow movements, yes. and um, and so many of the examples I use are in slow movements. Of course, if you have a very rapid moving jig, for instance, then sometimes it is the harpsichordist's role to be the rhythm keeper, and then these chords are appropriate. Maybe not always four-part chords. It depends on the dynamic level of the instruments. It might be three-part chords. Sometimes it might be five-part chords if you're emphasizing a cadence or something important happening in the music. Um, but it's, it, it, it certainly is a revolution. It's a reform from what the current practice is. And I have to say it's beyond what some of Bach's pupils mastered. Um, for instance, Kirnberger was very young at the end of Bach's life. He was a late teenager when he went to study with Bach, and he was there just for a couple of years, and his goal was to uh, to master the pure art of four-part harmony. And so he worked on what I've described now at the beginning of volume one of Bach and the Art of Improvisation. He worked day and night on this pure four-part harmony with the chorale melody and the thorough bass. We don't have evidence from Kiernberger um, or any descriptions that he was able to go beyond that in his own continuo playing. So when he realized the musical offering, continuo part, the thorough bass, he realized it as if it was an exercise in four part harmony. Yes. This could easily be misunderstood as Bach's way of playing continuo, but the descriptions negate that because this was a largo movement it was slow moving and there are many many opportunities in that very moment to have dialogue and debate and duet and so i i actually took that very moment movement because i knew that would be the question that people would say but what about kernberger Kirnberger wrote in four parts and in vertical chords and um I took that very movement and hired a Baroque violinist and Baroque cellist and traverso player. And we played this trio sonata that's in the musical offering, BWV 1079. And I played the harpsichord part and improvised the right hand according to the descriptions of Bach's continual playing. And I am putting that up on my website. Especially in time for this to work with your podcast so that your listeners can refer to that. And I have one other movement, it's uh, BWV 1043 uh, movement two, which was written as a double violin uh, work. And I have transcribed this as if it's a trio, and then I've created a quartet out of it by improvising. A right hand part. And so these, t- these two examples are applications in the book. And then the audio examples I will post on my website in time for your podcast so that your listeners can be the first to experience it. Excellent, Pamela. Of
0: course, uh, when people uh, uh, teach themselves from the book, right, it's sometimes tricky to get the practical application down, right? And uh, sometimes they need to. Uh, examples real life examples and thank you so much for taking the time and recording them
1: yes Um, my pleasure it was a delight and i worked with such great musicians uh, so that was wonderful we recorded at oberlin with paul Ekas, the wonderful recording engineer and deborah lonergan is playing the cello and Michael Lynn on the Traverso and Mary, Mary Riccardi on the Baroque Violin. They're all fabulous musicians. I hope you enjoyed listening to it.
0: Excellent, Pamela. You mentioned that uh, Kinberger didn't progress to the advanced stage of playing melodically right hand, right? Yes. And today, the uh, majority of, of continual players still play the chords, right? but maybe that is the reason uh, why it is uh, why we are stuck in this stage because uh, if we look at matisson grosse grosse general baschule and kleine general baschule the 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 little general baschule uh, uh, school and the great one right in the at the beginning he teaches only uh, you know courts in in yes. in kleine but in grosse uh, there there are all kinds of uh, ideas and uh, melodic uh, figures, right, that he, yes. he just in- incorporate, it, it it goes hand in hand with, with what you are saying about Bach.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. And, and Kuhnberger, of course, Bach died when Kuhnberger was very young, and Kuhnberger, of course, developed some of his compositional skills beyond what Bach what he had studied with Bach. But he did maintain his, I mean, he wrote his treatise on the pure art of four, four voice, the pure art of four-part writing and four-part harmony. And he even includes in, as he's describing fugue, he realizes the fugue um, thoroughbases as if they're in four parts. So he he held on to that. I think it made such an impression on him as a young student that he held on to that throughout his lifetime but indeed today this is how many of us were taught right in music theory classes and we have evidence of so many scores so many editors who have realized music this way so this has been the primary model in our time and you're right um, it's possible for all of us then to move beyond that again with the practice and it's Oh, I have to say it's so much more satisfying to work as a continual player by doing this because, again, the ears open wide up and I'm constantly thinking, okay, what, what passages does the violin have that I can play in dialogue or duet? And how about the cello voice? Is the cello coming in alone here without any upper voices? Then that means that I need a, a duet with that to fill that in, or I might need, if there's a, a theme that has, is followed by rests, those rests are an invitation for imitation of that theme. So there are all sorts of clues in the music once you start thinking about this. It's like solving a puzzle. It's, it's really most enjoyable and, and rewarding. Pamela, tell me this.
0: When a person, for example, learns from, from this chapter about continue playing, right? practices this application like Bach would would do right and uh, progresses to the further stage Um, is it possible to apply those skills and uh, go to the art of playing the fugue Uh, uh,
1: yes Um, so I well I progress through the continual playing through fugue Um, so the I'll the short answer to the art of the do you mean the art of fugue playing or the actually kunst der fugue bach's work
0: no just the the the, the techniques of of Ah oh,
1: yes yeah absolutely because through through finding the um, especially the dialogue aspects speak exactly to what is required in fugue playing so i I um, have two chapters on on continual playing the second is what Bach did when he transcribed cantata movements into concerti for um, two, three, four harpsichords, and how did he change the keyboard parts? So this is sort of a transcription exercise that continuo players are often asked to do as well. Sometimes they're playing the role of an orchestra, and um, so that's important to see how that changes. But yes, the the following, the succeeding chapter, two chapters are on fugue, and um, it's it's not exactly moving just from thinking about chords vertical chords and chorales because we've done this dialogue work this imitation work with continuo and the other thing is that we start fugues from partimento fugues and these are fugues that are written out as subject and answer And then when the bass line enters, so it might be a soprano subject alto answer, and if it's a three-voice fugue, then the bass is going to come in again with the subject. When the bass line comes in, the bass line continues with a thorough bass above it with just the figures. Sometimes a partimento uh, composer would indicate with an asterisk or some sign where the next answer or subject could enter and sometimes they just left it to the uh, students or the musician's imagination to figure out because it it has to work with the harmony. And this is where we're doing uh, almost in reverse what I was just talking about, that um, instead of creating only vertical harmony from a thorough bass, we were talking about creating single lines. So actually, that's then the the partimento starts with the vertical harmony, but then it does progress. I guess it's not in reverse. It's really the same thing. It progresses to um, creating imitation with the voices that have already entered with the subject and the answer. And that imitation can continue in inversion, in strato, in augmentation, diminution, all the various contrapuntal Um, techniques and but the baseline guides where the harmony is going where the mode might shift or a cadence might occur or uh, elide into the next subject Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so this this feels like a logical next step it doesn't feel like a giant leap from what we've just practiced Mm -hmm. and that that was the goal to get to the level of fugue playing and have that just be one more step on the staircase
0: Mm-hmm. It's sort of similar to what Dieterich Buxtehude would write in his uh, preludium, right? Uh, those fugues, section fu- fugal sections, they are not very advanced uh, polyphonically, right? But they're sort of uh, de- uh, more more developed versions of the partimento of the of the continuo realization of the bass,
1: right? Yes, exactly. And the, this this was described as um, fugues were described in Bach's day as having, well, it's possible that they could have, you know, seven parts rhetorically speaking. And I went into musical rhetoric in the prelude section in this book to describe how there are different sections within the prelude and each section plays a different role. But um, fugues also could be that complex. But generally, the fugues were described as having an exhorting, so an introductory portion, a medium, a middle portion, and a finis, just a concluding portion. And what we find in the partamento fugues and in Buxtehude's fugues that are within his um, preludia, alternating with free sections, that uh, we have basically the exordium. So we have the entrances of the subjects and the answers. And uh, this is primarily treated in the home key without mode shifts for the most part, and then um, after all of the voices have entered once or twice and and a few contrapuntal techniques have been added, then then Buxtehude goes back to his free material. And at that point, the partimento fugue con- concludes. Yes, but once yes. that exordium is practiced, we have a logical next step, right? To Because the exordium and the finis are bookends, so they match each other in many respects. Um, they're not identical, but they um, the finis harkens back to the home key and to the subject-to-answer um, entrances and then might have some prolonged... Uh, uh, figuration on over a dominant pedal perhaps or a cadential extension at the end of the piece to distinguish it as the end of the piece rather than the beginning of the piece
0: then and of course you know, canonical entrances of subjects right
1: yes exactly so this is often where we will see more strato and uh, the diminution or these uh, contrapuntal techniques applied in canon and um, the middle section then is the place where fugues might uh, wander a bit into s- some other modes and um, where the subject might be treated just the head of the subject or just the tail of the subject might be developed more. And um, But it's all playing sort of a rhetorical function in that there's this this idea introduced in in very profound terms in the exordium because its the counterpoint was considered very serious studies and the and the mark of a learned person, and then the the middle part the medium is a bit of a conversation on that, just taking excerpts from that the way we might dialogue about something, and then concluding. So in the final chapter, I add the medium and the finis to, to show what. What is the next step from the partimento fugue? I like how you titled this
0: chapter uh, for a lifetime, right? Fugues for a lifetime. Yes. Because it takes a lifetime to master this art, uh, like 10,000 hours, right? As Malcolm exactly.
1: Said. Exactly, the 10,000 hours plus. And, and still, I have to say, in a work such as Kunst der Fugue, the, the art of the fugue that Bach wrote, and was composing as he died um, was a work that was likely not intended to be improvised. So there still is a level of invertible counterpoint when this canonical treatment at different intervals and um, a a clue to this, of course, is the open score writing that Bach. Uh, used when he was composing the art of the fugue and and the fact that he did not uh, specify any instrument to be performing it, that it was left open-ended more as, again, a treatise that he gives us in what one can achieve when one spends a lifetime, yes, of practicing improvising fugues and then ultimately composing fugues and uh, performing fugues.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Pamela, if you go back in time when you first started uh, improvising, and now you know so much and you can do so many things with this, right? You recreated Bach's living tradition uh, and uh, continue to do this for a new generation. Uh, but if we go back in time, in your mind, for example, would you do something different when you first started if you had a chance today?
1: I wouldn't. I, I think starting by ear is the most beautiful way to start. And just starting with a, a wide open, curious mind is one of the most important things that is it a, a huge gift that children have. Every child is born with this and Unfortunately, that gift sometimes is thwarted through education because we're made to follow the rules, to trade color inside of the lines, to perform in a certain way, and um, to think of perfection instead of expression and creativity. And so I think this creative, open-eared, open-minded approach is still the, the most beautiful and successful approach for improvisation that that as we try, yes, we struggle, we'll feel stuck, but we're not saying that doesn't mean I can't do it. We're saying instead, ah, that's a new puzzle to solve. How can we solve it? And what did I learn if that didn't work? What would work better? Or why didn't that work? And just this constant asking the next question, but but maintaining this sense of wonderment that I don't think I'll ever get over this sense of wonderment in listening to Bach's music and how fantastic it is. And so that means that of course I have a lifetime of exploring improvisation in the style of Bach, and this pedagogy actually works for any pattern language in music. So if one prefers to work in the style of Messian, for instance, this pedagogy works for that. Or jazz, it works for jazz. It works for if you you would like to um, improvise a sonata such as Mozart or Haydn or Beethoven did. This pedagogy works for that. And if if, if a person is willing to work, have the tenacity to practice all of these applications in Bach and the art of improvisation, then they own it. They own the pedagogy and they can improvise in any other pattern language just by practicing that. I, if I may, um, uh, Eduardo Bellotti wrote yes. the foreword yes. to volume two. Mm-hmm. He made such an important point and I thought it would be interesting to to bring this up at toward the end of our conversation. He, uh, Eduardo gave a, a lecture in Rome in the last fall. And in this lecture, he uh, started talking about um, well we we those of us who have been interested in early music have watched um the rediscovery of ancient instruments and the restorations of organs and harpsichords, and then replicas or copies or, or instruments that were modeled after or influenced by these ancient instruments have been built, and more and more instrument makers are becoming better and better at at creating these instruments, restoring these instruments, preserving the instruments, and so we have new these wonderful soundscapes that are more and more accessible. At the same time, concurrent to that, was the discovery of, of scores that many, many scores that were lost in the World War II, for instance, and scores that were just in libraries or warehouses in different places have now come to light. They've been published, they've been edited, we have urtext editions, we have facsimile editions. The music is available, the instruments are available, we have facsimiles of treatises, so a lot of this early knowledge has been transmitted. So we've collected all of this information and these living documents. But now, as Eduardo said in his lecture, and then he took parts from that lecture and turned this into the foreword to Bach in the Art of Improvisation. He said, now the important step is not to just rest with all of these wonderful resources, but to use them in creative ways. And improvisation is our, our new call. This is part of what it means to creatively work with the, the historic sources of music and instruments. And um, I think that's a beautiful invitation. He, he... Beautiful inspiration. Thank you so much, Pamela.
0: You're so generous and so inspiring. I hope people will will uh, check out your book, your work, and uh, say hello to you. Could you mention the place online where, where they can find the book and uh, you and your work and support you?
1: Yes. Uh, so my website is com, And that is uh, spelled P A M E L A R U I T E R. F, as in flower, E-E-N-S-T-R-A. Um, and you can Google my website, and then you'll find Bach in the Art of Improvisation, Volume 2. You'll also find Volume 1, some of my CDs, my works for children, organ compositions, and much more on that website. And I'm happy to share that link with you, Vitas, also so that you may have that on your website. Because you are so gracious in sharing resources with the entire globe. And I'm very grateful to you for your wonderful work. Thank you, Pamela, so much. Uh, you're doing
0: tremendous work for the organ community, for early music community as well, and for, for uh, music community in general, I think, for creative community. right? And uh, I hope you will be continuing do, to do this work for a very long time. And let me know about your next book.
1: Thank you, Nidas. It will be a pleasure to talk with you anytime. And I will let you know because there are more works in in progress right now.
0: If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch
1: you online really soon.